Okay. Uh, I'm hope Lord willing, this is hopefully to finish up this little sidestep we made. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, in, over here in Romans chapter, chapters 9, 10, and 11. So uh, I think most of you have gotten the handout on the little tree map here. And we want to really just follow what the Apostle Paul had to say there uh, concerning that. And the focus of this was uh, on the unity of the gospel and the oneness that has been proclaimed in Christ. Now, you know, when you look at uh, chapter 9, and let's see here, beginning, <coughs> excuse me, beginning in, uh, at the very first verse of chapter 11, he says there, uh, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And Paul says, by no means. And of course, the context of all of that is the, the fact that Gentiles were now receiving the gospel and they were admitted to the church. And of course, the question came up then, well, if he's letting Gentiles in, has God removed Israel? Has he rejected them? And Paul says, no. No, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So Paul just states it very clearly. But then he goes on and he gives the illustration here about Elijah and how he thought he was the last one left in Israel that had faith in God. And then of course he tells them about Elijah and how he had, God had reserved or kept for himself 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, was it exactly 7,000? You know, we know the word number, uh, the word, the number seven uh, is a kind of a comprehensive number. It just means the totality of all those that he had reserved. How many? It was probably more than that or maybe 6,950, I don't know. I doubt it was exactly 7,000, but his point that he's making to Elijah is, you know, there are still people of faith. There are still those who believe in Abraham's promises. They haven't caved in and given over to Baal to bow the knee to him as the rest of Israel had done, and they were guilty. And of course, ultimately, God sent them off into exile because of it. Now, if you look down at verse 5, he says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? In verse 7, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. But the elect, or the chosen ones, obtained it. But the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they would not see, and ears that they uh, would not hear, down to this very day. Now where Paul's headed here, and I think an area that we miss, and we don't think about it, uh, you know, because we always refer to Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles. And you would be correct. 
But there's more than him just being an apostle to the Gentiles. When you read chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans here, you'll see that Paul had a ministry to the Gentiles for a reason. Because of his burden for his own people, Israel. See, he understood what God was saying regarding the fullness of the Gentiles that were to come in which we see that over in uh, verses 11, uh, 11 through and 12. He says, so I ask, he says, did they stumble? That is my people Israel. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? So in other words, to be completely left out of the picture? And he says, no, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And those things you know, need to be remembered to go together, that God has opened the door for us, Gentiles, to be members of the body of Christ, of the church, of the Abrahamic promises, to be recipients of what he promised in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. But then he goes on to say, so as to make Israel jealous. So they may have been set aside. They may have been diminished, as that word in, in the ESV translated failure. Um, you know, they, they may have been diminished or reduced uh, in terms of their influence in the gospel. But he says, if that means riches for us, then how much more, he says, their inclusion, a future inclusion. Now, if you look at your, your, your tree, which we're coming to that, um, well, I'm, I'm gonna get ahead of myself if I do that. So verse 13, he says, now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am a, an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. There he says it again. And thus save some of them. Didn't say all, some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So there's a consequence here regarding Gentiles being, you know, and God, God, God had to allow, or I shouldn't say that. It was Paul's emphasizing the fact that it's God's choice to harden Israel so that he could keep his promise to the Gentiles in Genesis chapter 12, when he said that in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And this is how God chose to do it. He chose to harden Israel. That is, those, not the remnant now, they were believers. He chose to harden the remainder of Israel so that he could fulfill his Abrahamic promise. And that's a promise to you and me. But then he says, you know, Paul's whole question then, and he knows that that's the question coming up. Well, if that's the case, then is he written off Israel? And Paul says, no. 
That is not the case. He says, when the fullness of the, well, we're getting ahead of here a little bit, but when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then there's going to be a restoration of Israel. Now, if you go on to read, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, beginning in verse uh, 16, he says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. If the potter has a lump of, a lump of dough, the potter, if the baker has a lump of dough, and he's getting ready to bake bread, and he says, I'm going to pinch off some, and it's going to be given as a sacrifice to God, and it becomes holy. Paul says, well, if that's the case, the whole lump has to be holy. You can't have a defiled lump over here and then pull off a pinch and say, well, this is now holy. It doesn't work that way. Then he goes on to give us the illustration that we want to move towards concerning the olive tree. He says, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And what does Paul have in mind there? He's talking about Israel. And if the root is holy, then the whole, the whole, the whole nation is set apart as holy. And so that's where we come to our chart then, that and when you look at the tree, and you'll see down there at the bottom, a holy root means holy branches. The whole thing. And you'll notice um, he calls it the, the um, well, he calls it here, um, what does he call it? The, the, um, I need, well, let me just say it, the King James calls it the, the richness and the fatness of the tree is blessed because of, and the whole tree is blessed because of Israel. Now, if you look at the tree, you'll see on, on, on uh, well, let me just continue reading the text and we'll come back over to that in a second. But then he says in verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off and you Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root. That's what I was looking for. Uh, the nourishing root of the tree, the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. So that's what we see over here. Uh, on the left-hand side where it says Gentiles were a wild olive shoot. And you'll see that the lines go into the tree. I did that on purpose to show that it was grafted in. On the other side, on the right, you don't see that because they were natural branches. But then they were broken off and removed. And so he goes on to tell them then, uh, the Gentiles, he says branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true, you Gentiles. Branches were broken off so that God could graft and Gentiles into the tree. And so he says then, don't become arrogant. He says, this is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. That's why. That's why it says unbelieving Israel on the right-hand side with the little branches coming off the tree. It was removed. But up there at the top, you'll we'll see uh, that there was still a remnant that is still attached to the tree. And of course, that all, the tree is Abraham. 
It all goes back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. So you go on to read then what Paul says regarding that. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. It was the, it's the faith of a believing Gentile that, if you want to say it this way, gives access to the Abrahamic promise. He is going to fulfill that in us that all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now that's a very broad, generic statement, but there's a lot that's going to happen in the future when, well, Ken was mentioning it, when the Lord comes back to establish his rule over the earth. So even though there is a present blending of Israel, believing Israel, the remnant, and Gentiles, who are incorporated both into the tree, there remains yet a future for God's people Israel. Paul says God has not written them off. And he goes on to tell them then, yeah, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Now you think about those words. The kindness that God showed to Israel, but also the severity in hardening them, a partial hardening, so that, so that the Gentiles could come in and participate in the richness and the fatness of the tree. Then he goes on to tell them, he says, um, <coughs> God's uh, kindness to you, but provided you continue in, the, in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. There's no such guarantee that you remain in that tree. Now, there is a distinction, and we've looked at this multiple times in the past, regarding a person who comes to faith in Christ. Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about maintaining their relationship with the Lord to receive the benefits of the Abrahamic covenant. And disobedience can cause you to lose that. And we know, well, again, Jerry read some verses there this morning concerning the judgment seat of Christ. It is possible to lose those benefits, to go away empty-handed. <coughs> Then regarding Israel, he says, um, concerning them, he says, uh, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off or cut from what is by uh, nature a wild olive tree, in other words, Paul saying, if you Gentiles, there was this wild olive tree over here and then you have this cultivated olive tree over here which refers to Abraham and he cut a branch out of that wild olive tree and he grafted it in over here if I can do that then I can take it right back out again you don't have to stay in the tree and he says, if you're grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree how much more 
Will, the, will these, uh, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Because it's, it's not a wild one. It's a natural branch. So God can graft them back in. So the, the, the removal, the broken off branches, do not necessarily have to be permanent. That's, that's Paul's point. Now, I lost my place in my notes here, so that, that really that happens all the time. Um, well, where are we here? Verse, verse, okay. Well, let's just go on and read verse 25. For lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, that a partial, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now, I don't know what your translation may say there. Mine just says a partial hardening. But if you look in the Greek text, there's a, uh, what's called, uh, it's, what's the word, henna. And typically it's translated in order that. And that's the whole point that Paul's making. I don't know why they leave it out. I mean, at least in this translation they did. The point of it all is, is that Israel was hardened partially in order that he says the, uh, that the fullness of the Gentiles could be brought in. Once that is completed, then there's going to be a future restoration. And so he says then, in this way, or you could say in this manner, all Israel will be saved. Now, I get caught up again where I want to go. Um, verse 26. We just continue on. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regarding election or as regarding the chosen ones, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you they also may now receive mercy and it's just a long way for Paul to say look everybody in order for me to show mercy all had to be disobedient the Gentiles were disobedient Israel had to become disobedient so that God could show mercy Matter of fact, he says, um, well, in verse 32, for God has, this is interesting here, um, for, for God has consigned all to disobedience. Now, before the word all, there's an article. God has consigned the all to disobedience, that he ha may have mercy on the all. 
And that's just a strong way of emphasizing that all had to become disobedient in order that all could have mercy. Otherwise, God would not have been able to extend the mercy. Now, you know, we've got to go back now and look at chapter 9. Paul really jumps around here, and to me, it's very hard to keep up with. As a matter of fact, it's not this hard for me. If you, you talk about the varying interpretations of, the, of this whole section, chapters 9 through 11, uh, one commentator says there's not enough time in a person's lifetime to read all the different views and all the comments that have been made on these passages here in 9 through 11. And of course, I thought to myself, yeah, where am I then? <laughs> and, and uh, you know, thankfully, thankfully, some statements here are just as plain as day. Some are clear, and you don't really question what Paul had to say. But one of those is, and it's been highly debated, is what did he mean when he said, all Israel shall be saved? Now, I don't know if this is correct or not. Like I said, I, say, I struggle through this thing. You read it, you think you got something, then over here it says something else, and then you got to go back and rethink that. And it's hard. That's all I can tell you. It is hard. If anybody ever says they can read those chapters and they've got it down pat, I, I was. I'd stay away. You can't do it. At least nobody that I know or have, has heard preach or has read, I've read after, has, you know, can do a clear picture. They'll all admit somewhere along the way, you can't hardly grasp what, what Paul's trying to say. If you look in chapter 9, you remember some verses that we've already read. He said, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, but for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And we, we pictured that on the drawing that I had on the board over here, that there is a, a distinction between who is believing Israel and who isn't. And we look back in chapter 2 of Romans, verses 26 to 29, I think it is, long in there, where Paul said that it's not just a Israelite circumcised in the flesh that's an Israelite, but the true Israelite is the one that's circumcised in the heart. Paul makes a very clear distinction as to who a real Israelite is. And that was what I was trying to put over here on this little picture and graph, that there is a, a distinct what he later calls a remnant of believing Jews. And they have been that way ever since the day of Abraham. There have always been those who believed in, in Abraham's promises. There's never been a, a, a skip anywhere throughout the history of Israel. Now, he goes on to say, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. That is, by flesh, by natural birth. But, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And this means, he says, 
in verse 8 that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Well, if we go back and remember Isaac, Isaac was not born in a natural way. He was a miracle baby. You remember the story. And Paul's application or point here then is that because he was different from the rest of the kids, he tells them then that it's not the children of the flesh. It's not just because they were born of Abraham and he had more than one child that makes them, that makes them an Israelite. It's not the children of the flesh, it is the children of promise. Well, Isaac was the child of promise. And he says they are, they are the ones counted as offspring. So, going on down into, <clears throat> excuse me, um, well, let me just read the whole thing. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, or if you follow the translation that I like the best, the New American and, and Young's Literal says, uh, says it this way, in order that the purpose of God according to choice might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now the point of all that is, is that God was the one who made the choice. He chose between the two, the twins. The older, he says, will serve the younger. That was God's choice. This is how, you know, Paul's not trying to explain to us and give us a rational reason and say, look, you know, this is, this is it. Think about this, folks. You know, he's telling us this is how God chose to do it. And that's why he argued earlier, you know, about the potter. When he said, if the potter takes a lump of clay and he takes it one way, who are you to argue with God then? It's none of your business. God chooses. He makes the choice or the election to do what he's doing because it was his choice. This is how he chose to do it. And he chose to fulfill the promise to the Gentiles in the Abrahamic covenant. He chose to harden the heart of Israel, the unbelieving ones, so that the Gentiles could become in, grafted in. That's how he chose to do it. Paul doesn't give us a rational explanation why that had to be that way. It's he chose to be that way. He chose to do it. And he goes on to say that, <coughs> not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's God. He is the one who calls. Then he goes on about the younger, the older serving the younger, and Jacob I love, but Esau I hated, and so on. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, that doesn't seem fair, God. Why would you, why would you just break off the branches of Israel and cast them off to the side? 
and just let them go for what's been a couple thousand years now. Why would you choose to do that? Well, then that's when Paul goes on to make the application of the point. God has mercy on who he wills. And so if you have been a recipient of the gospel, if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to understand that it was purely God's mercy that you heard the gospel and that you believe. You know, Israel heard the gospel. Most of them did not believe. Most of them. Back when Elijah was there, he thought he was the only one left. Of course, and he turned out he had a few more than that, 7,000. So don't you worry, Elijah. I've got this in control. Well, I'm in charge here. Let me say it that way. I was just reading uh, recently, a guy wrote an article trying to explain, and I think it's a good application here. It makes, it makes sense to, to me about how God can create or make people of free will to choose what we want to do. We can accept or we can reject. We can live lives of debauchery or we can live lives of holiness, whatever we want. And yet, at the same time, God is moving everything in a certain path in order to fulfill and bring to consummation what he started off with, Adam and Eve, back in the Garden of Eden. And God's going to do it. He's going to bring it all back together in spite of us. And so the statement he made was this, and you had to stop and think about it a little bit. At least I did. He says, God is in charge, but he's not in control. The, the point of all that, of course, was he's not in control because you and I have the free will to choose how we want to live our life. But on the other hand, <coughs> however you choose, God's still in charge. And he is going to bring to pass what he promised in Abraham. It's going to happen. So, coming down to um, verse 22. Chapter 9, verse 22. He says there then regarding this whole argument, and you know, about not arguing against God. God makes the choice. He says, what if, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, well, there's two opposing things, his wrath and his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction because of their disobedience and their unbelief. Now, not watch what he says. In order to make known the riches of his glory. For what else? Not vessels of wrath, but vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us. And I, I'll tell you, I, I really love that those two words, even us. Because Paul is including the Gentiles and himself. It's together. It's one. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. 
as indeed he says in Hosea. Now, I'll stop there and just make a comment because I'll have to confess to you, I don't understand this, so I'm just going to tell you what it says and then we'll just go from there and I'll let you ponder it and maybe you can come and tell me, well, here's what he was saying, here's what he meant right here because I don't, I don't, it's, it's a hard thing to grasp. <coughs> Turn back to Hosea, if you would. I should have told you that a little bit ago so you wouldn't, while I was talking, you could have uh, been looking. I'm going to take a drink of water while you do that. Hosea chapter 1. I took, ate my chocolate. You know, I read where chocolate's supposed to be good for you to help her preach better. Uh, I'm voice wise, but I don't know if it's working or not today, so. So he, he now in chapter 1, uh, where he says the word of uh, Yahweh that came to Hosea and so on. When Yahweh, in verse three, 2, when Yahweh first spoke through Hosea, the, Yahweh said to Hosea, go, take, uh, excuse me, take to yourself a wife of Hordim and have children of Hordim for the land commits great Hordim by forsaking Yahweh. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And Yahweh said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now, of course, hopefully you remember the kingdom of the house of Israel was the northern kingdom. Ten of those tribes had forsaken Yahweh. Now, two had remained faithful in Judah. And of course, the scriptures make a, a distinction between the two. But notice what he says: I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and bore a daughter. And Yahweh said to him, call her name, no mercy. Remember what we just read back in in uh, Romans, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And the point of it was, if I choose, you remember with the twins that were in Rachel's belly, he says, if I choose to love one and hate the other, then that's my business. God is not unrighteous in doing so, Paul argued. So here, here he says, call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. He brings them to an end. No mercy at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. And I will save them by, by, the, by Yahweh, their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Now when she, in verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and Yahweh said, call his name, not my people. Not my people. That's the northern kingdom. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now that sounds like a note of finality. And as we well know, I think that, Ultimately, when the northern kingdom was carried off into captivity, 
they were the ones that were assimilated into all the Gentile nations where they were sent. And the distinction of the northern kingdom was lost. It's been lost in history. Now, some people will say, well, God hasn't forgotten, and I'm sure he knows where they all are. But so they, they've intermingled with the Gentiles. They haven't maintained themselves separately. They've intermarried, have children together, and so on. So it, it's, and that was just the nature of the case. So he goes on to say, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children or sons of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Now, having noted that, let's see, then uh, turn over to, well, chapter 2 and verses 22 and 23. He says there, the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. God's that's his right. It's his privilege. Those who he said no mercy, now he says, I will have mercy on them. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Now, of course, the question that comes right up then is, well, if they've been scattered among the nations, that northern kingdom, how is all that going to happen? Well, if we turn back over here to, uh, excuse me, Romans, to the passage that Paul is quoting, we need to remember that in the context here, Paul is talking about Jews and Gentiles, not the northern kingdom. And it's, it's interesting how Paul takes that passage that in Hosea was being applied to the northern kingdom. Now over here, he applies it to Gentiles. He says, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now, how, how does it happen? This is what I'm tossing out to you. How is it that Paul can take a passage that was in the Old Testament, written about the northern kingdom, where God wrote them off, as it were, and yet he gave promises of restoration, and yet now here, in applying this to the Gentiles, he does something entirely different. He implies it to, to us. Then he goes on, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth, fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left this offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, 
He goes on to say, what should we say then? Of course, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, and so on. So just saying that to show that the whole context here of Romans 9, 10, 11, all of it has to do with God's incorporating the Gentiles into the, the believing community. And ultimately, of course, becomes the body of Christ into the church at the day of, at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So, having those thoughts, turn back then to chapter 11, <coughs> because Paul continues his argument. In other words, we've looked at all this. He continues his argument regarding God's rejecting of his people and his acceptance of Gentiles. And I'm just going to toss this one out for you to think about because this is what one commentator said and I thought it was very, very interesting. Whether I buy it or not, I don't know. So I'm going to give it to you. In verse 26, he, he, uh, well, excuse me, verse 25, where he said this partial heart hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way or in this manner, all Israel will be saved. How is it that, and what is it that all Israel? Is it the whole nation of Israel? Most don't see it that way, although some do. But think of it this way. When God scattered the 10 tribes into the Gentile nations and they were absorbed into the rest of the world, what they call the diaspora, this, this is scattering of Israel, which is later on took Judah as well, but primarily the northern kingdom. And now Paul's argument is bringing the Gentiles in would have included those Israelites that were scattered amongst the Gentile nations. So you follow what we're saying? Those ten nations were scattered amongst the Gentiles. Now when Paul takes and applies this from Hosea to Gentiles, he's including everybody outside the nation of Judah and this or the southern kingdom. So that would have included those who are inter, the ten tribes that were intermingled with the Jews, with the Gentiles, and now they have been brought in and incorporated into the body. And so he can say, thus shall all Israel be saved. I don't know. I'm going to leave that with you. Think about it. And let me know. Because this is a hard place. I mean, there, this, this verse right here, all Israel will be saved, is a, that's a hard one to answer. As a matter of fact, if you think of it this way, if Paul makes a promise that all Israel will be saved, and you say, well, I think, personally, I think that must be the whole nation of Israel. Well, what do you do then with all the Gentiles who have not believed? You know, are they just cast off then? There's no promise given to them. If that's the approach you take, so I give you something to think about there too. I don't think that works. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessings of uh, being vessels of mercy. Those that you have cast your mercy upon and hearing the gospel that we might believe. 
and all the security, the joy, the peace, the love that comes from having received Christ Jesus our Savior, the Messiah. Lord, we pray for your people Israel. Paul said there's a future yet for them, a future restoration. So we pray, God, that the gospel would reach many of those hearts, that they would come to Christ, that the efforts of those ministering in Israel, or even people like Jackie, distributing the Hebrew scriptures to your people, that they might be saved. Bless them, O oh God, I pray, in Jesus' name.